Our text for this morning is taken from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 26. As you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Himaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And so... Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponent with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. We are humbled before it and humbled before you. Help us to be what we are not. Help us to understand what we do not. Help us to live in the ways that honor and glorify you. 
forgive us of our sins, cleanse us, and provide us the hope that we need in Christ. Illuminate our hearts by your spirit now as we study your word, that we might leave a gospel legacy for generations to come. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In 1996, pastors Mark Driscoll, Leif Moy, and Mike Gunn planted a church called Mars Hill in Seattle, Washington. And what began as a home Bible study by the early 2000s had grown into a mega church network. It gathered over 12,000 people each week. It spanned over 15 locations and existed in 14, or I'm sorry, four different states. Now, in addition to weekly worship, Mars Hill would famously post Mark Driscoll's sermons online, and those would bring in over 200,000 views every week. And this is still in kind of the infancy of internet being used, broadly speaking. Mars Hill produced podcasts. They produced worship albums. They published books. They started a church planting network, and they made huge waves in evangelicalism. Some of you are familiar with Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll. And while there were some at the time early on that had concerns about Driscoll's attitude or his approach to ministry, on the whole, and I'll speak from personal experience here, in the 2000s, Mars Hill was seen as a church that was leaving a profound gospel legacy. That is until 2014. You see, Mark Cosper in his 2021 podcast, The Rise and the Fall of Mars Hill, puts it like this. After more than a decade of tremendous growth in ministry, Mars Hill imploded with the resignation of its lead pastor, Mark Driscoll. Mars Hill's punk rock spirit became its downfall as power, fame, and spiritual trauma invaded and marked the ministry. In 2015, in January of 2015, Mars Hill was officially dissolved and the network as well. Congregations were left to discern what their path forward was gonna be for themselves and thousands of Christians were left confused and hurt and churchless. Many people, even friends of mine, left the church and left their faith, some of them for good. Today, Mars Hill, when we look back on it, feels a lot less like a gospel legacy and a lot more like a scar on evangelicalism. Mark Cosper asks an interesting question in his podcast. How did things fall apart so terribly? Where did Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill go so terribly wrong? These are good questions. We're continuing our sermon series this morning in 2 Timothy. At the heart of this series and at the heart of 2 Timothy is the conviction that God has saved us and he has called us to leave a gospel legacy for generations to come. Or as he says it in the letter, to guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to us. And last week, as we started our sermon series, we saw that the foundation of this legacy is laid by cherishing the gospel message that is found only in God's word. And it is also found by cherishing the gospel heritage that we belong to, willing to suffer in the same way that generations before us have suffered for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of God's word. But if we pause... I'm sure that if we went and we talked to those people who were represented by Mars Hill and their ministries, and we asked them, did you cherish the gospel message? Did you cherish the gospel heritage to which you belong? I have no doubt in my mind that most, if not all of them, would say, of course we did. 
Of course we cherished the gospel. Can't you tell? Of course we cherished the gospel heritage from which we belonged. This is why I think it is so important to recognize how naive it is to hear those stories, stories like Mars Hill, and think to ourselves, that could never happen to us. We need to recognize that we are capable of tarnishing the gospel legacy that has been entrusted to us. In fact, this is, I think, one of the main reasons that the Apostle Paul felt compelled to write 2 Timothy. You remember, Timothy is the pastor now of the churches in the city of Ephesus. And in in chapter 1, if you go back, you'll notice that Paul describes what is happening around Timothy. And he says that there's a great falling away of those in Asia. It's in verse 15, if you want to look. Many in Ephesus were turning away from the gospel, even men that Paul and Timothy knew personally. The church in Ephesus was in danger of tarnishing their gospel legacy, and I believe we are in a similar place in the United States. Just think back the last five, maybe 10 years, we've heard of scandal after scandal coming to light in churches and across denominations. We've heard of many deconstructing their faith, even even people that we know and love, people leaving the church and never returning. We live in a time of great turning away. We, as the church in the United States, are in grave danger of tarnishing our gospel legacy. But it is to us, to those that are surrounded by those who are tarnishing their gospel legacy, that God's word says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Those first two words in chapter two might be better translated, but you. God calls us as his people to think differently to live differently, and to help others do the same. To recognize that leaving a gospel legacy requires having gospel priorities in our lives. And what Paul does in this portion of the letter is describe what it looks like to have gospel priorities in our lives. And the first way that gospel priorities look is that it looks like us thinking like good soldiers. I want you to look here down at verse three. Paul, beginning to describe the Christian life in various metaphors, he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuit since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Christians think like good soldiers. And what, what does that mean, that, that we should think like good soldiers? Well, I think perhaps it's helpful to kind of have in our minds an example, maybe an image of a good soldier. And I think the best soldier that is described in the pages of Scripture is a man named Uriah the Hittite. Now, you might remember Uriah the Hittite from 2 Samuel. And what we know about Uriah is that he was a part of King David's mighty men. Think of them as kind of the Navy SEALs of David's army. Incredibly faithful, incredibly skilled And the reason that we know so much about Uriah the Hittite is because David killed or had Uriah the Hittite killed when he was trying to cover up his sin of sleeping with Uriah's wife Bathsheba. But before David had the chance to kill Uriah, 
In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we read that David brought Uriah home from battle early. He got him into his palace, he got Uriah drunk, and then he sent Uriah home to be with his wife, again, trying to cover up his sin. And in 2 Samuel, it says, Uriah, instead of going home, slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. And then David confronts Uriah and says, what are you doing? Why aren't you just going home to be with your wife? It sounds like that would be a great way to just relax and let your guard down and just kind of be home for a moment before you head back. And Uriah says to David, his king, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this. What an amazing example of a good soldier. How does a good soldier think? They're constantly focusing on the mission. I want you to notice how Paul describes the mission of the good soldier, those who desire to leave a gospel legacy. He says his aim is to please the one who enlists them. And in verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A good soldier does not prioritize pleasing himself. A good soldier prioritizes pleasing his commanding officer. We see this in the life of Uriah, right? He's unwilling to entangle himself in uh, civilian pursuits. Instead, Uriah is willing to embrace the suffering of being on mission, of embracing the suffering to please his commanding officer. If we're going to leave a gospel legacy, it requires us to think and to live in that same way, not to please ourselves, not to entangle ourselves in the world, but to always be considering how can we please God? Our commander and our king, the one who by his grace through Christ alone has enlisted us in his army. And so what, what would please our commander? What would please God in our lives? And I think that Paul in verses 24 and to 26 describes the mission. He says, what would please our commander is that if we would seek the salvation of others by how we live our lives. In verse 24, Paul writes, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Those who think like good soldiers in the Christian life, they recognize that those who don't believe in or follow Christ are in bondage to their sin. They are enslaved by the devil and they are waiting the judgment and wrath of God forever. And it is God's mission that his people prioritize proclaiming the gospel, making Christ known to all that those whom God has called to himself might be set free from their bondage through faith in Jesus. Our call as the church is to proclaim the message that sets captives free by making disciples of Jesus. And in case you had any doubts that this is our mission as God's people, Jesus makes it abundantly clear 
in Matthew chapter 28 when he says, Go therefore to his disciples and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. To think and to live like a good soldier is to focus on the mission, to seek God's approval alone, and to make disciples and seek the salvation of others. That is how good soldiers in the Lord's army think. Now, the reason I think so many Christians struggle to embody and understand this aspect of leaving a gospel legacy is in how we approach our lives. Now, for a moment, I want you to think about the difference between two different approaches to life. One is to approach your life by compartmentalizing it, and the other is to approach your life by prioritizing it. So let me kind of break those down for a second. Some of us approach our lives by compartmentalizing it. We think about our home life, we think about our work life, we think about our church life, our relationships, our various identities and passions and hobbies, and we put each of those in a separate box. And at various times in the week, we go to those different boxes and we sit in the cubicle and we do the work and foster the desires and prioritize the priorities of that specific box. And when we're in the church box, we prioritize God. But when we're going to work, or when we're thinking about our relationships, or when we're thinking about extracurricular activities or hobbies, whatever the case might be, that's a separate box, right? We're compartmentalizing, and we don't need to acknowledge God in those boxes because we've got the box for that. We've got where we can go to think about God's priorities. That is not how good soldiers think. We don't compartmentalize, we prioritize, which means we have first priorities, God's glory. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Christian, we need to submit all of our identities, all of our vocations, all the boxes of our lives to Christ. We need to break out of this compartmentalizing and recognize Everything needs to be submitted to him. As we just sang, surrendered to him. Is God your first priority? Does his existence, does his will, does his word hold sway in every aspect of your life? And perhaps a better way to ask this question, as I think Paul would ask it, is are you living to please the Lord everywhere or are you simply living to please yourself? Those who are leaving a gospel legacy seek to please the Lord. They think like good soldiers and they also think like winning athletes. I want you to look at verse 5. Paul gives us another metaphor. He says, good soldier is one metaphor to think about the Christian life, also an athlete. An athlete, he says, is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, I want you to notice here that Paul is describing the activity of a winning athlete, right? He says that those who are competing according to the rules, and I think the metaphor here is really fascinating because what Paul is saying is it doesn't matter how impressive that athlete's performance is. If he breaks the rules, he is disqualified from winning. Now, I was reminded of this uh, 
often throughout my childhood as I was playing hockey. Now, throughout my younger years, I played hockey for many, many years, but in my first year of playing hockey, I, for the life of me, could not figure out how offsides works. Okay? And so what would happen invariably each and every game that first season is I would get the puck and bolt down the rink and make my way to the goal and sometimes even make a goal, but it didn't matter. It didn't matter how impressive my puck handling was. It didn't matter how fast I skated down the rink. It didn't matter how important that goal appeared to be. It didn't count. I was off sides, right? I broke the rules and therefore I was disqualified from winning. The same is true, Paul says, if we desire to leave a gospel legacy. And so what what does it mean for us to compete according to the rules? What what disqualifies us, it it might say, from leaving a gospel legacy? I want you to notice in verses 15 through 18 that Paul identifies two things. And the first is heresy, that is false teaching. The first way that we can be disqualified from leaving a gospel legacy is by following after false teaching. In verse 15, he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Paul is talking and describing heresy here. Heresy is any belief or rejection of any biblical belief which strikes against the fundamental truths of the Christian faith. In this passage, we see an example of a kind of rejection against the fundamental truths of the Christian faith. Paul describes two men that were saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're not so much talking about the resurrection of Jesus, which everybody affirmed within the Christian circles that this has happened. What's being described here is the resurrection of the dead that is meant to happen at the end of time, when Christ returns and all are seated before his throne and we, his people, are welcomed into the new heavens and the new earth. These men are describing to people that this has already happened. Now, we don't know the details as to how they taught this or what the consequences of this teaching were specifically in Ephesus, but we have a description here of how Paul feels about this false teaching. He describes it as irreverent babble, talk that disrespects God at the deepest level. And then he describes it as gangrene, which is absolutely horrifying. He says... It's it's like an infection. It's an infection that continually spreads and attacks the body. It begins even to eat away at the bone, an unending infection. You see, false teaching and heresy is not just a difference of opinion. A belief or a rejection of a biblical belief that strikes against the fundamentals of the Christian faith, this is rejection of God's word. And it not only tarnishes our gospel legacy, but it will lead to spiritual death. And unfortunately, this is exactly what is happening right now in the United Methodist Church. This was reported this last Thursday by the Associated Press. More than 6,000 United Methodist congregations, that is one-fifth of those represented in the United States, they've received permission from the denomination to leave because the denomination is expected this coming year to codify the affirmation of same-sex marriage. 
and to codify the ordination of those who live and identify as LGBTQ. And when they were asked to comment on this mass exodus of those 6,000 churches that are leaving, Bishop Thomas Bickerton, the president of the United Methodist Church's Council of Bishops, said this to the Associated Press on Thursday. We're pivoting away from what we were and into what our next expression is going to be. This is our opportunity to refashion the church for relevance in the 21st century. I have no doubt in my mind they want to be relevant in the 21st century. But they are in fact rejecting the authority of scripture on these things. They will be led more and more into ungodliness and it will tarnish their gospel legacy. And I for one applaud those churches that have elected to leave. What they've elected to do is to suffer for the sake of the gospel and the sake of God's word. They will lose a lot for doing this. They will lose relationships. They will lose connections. They will probably lose a lot of church buildings. They will lose funding and support, and they may even be persecuted and oppressed by their communities. But you know what they will not experience? They will not be disqualified from leaving a gospel legacy. Now, before I move on to this next point, I want you to hear me. Because if you are someone who struggles with same-sex attraction, if you are someone who struggles with gender dysphoria, I want you to know that you matter to us and you matter to God. You are loved and you are welcomed here. You're made in God's image, fearfully and wonderfully made, is what God's word says. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message for you. God's word does provide answers. Christ does provide forgiveness and hope and wholeness and thriving and joy. And so if you have questions about these things, I personally extend an invitation to talk with you, to meet with you. We are a church that desires for you to know the love and the grace of God. But heresy isn't the only way, church, that we can be disqualified. We can also be disqualified through scandal. Okay, the difference between heresy and scandal is that scandal happens by those who are affirming biblical truths but still decide to follow after sin. This is what Paul is talking about in, in verses 20 and 21. He begins to describe kind of this makeup of a great house of all these different vessels that might be used by the owner of that house. He says, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And this is why, as we look at this passage, this is why stories like Mars Hill are so tragic. Now, this is public knowledge. As, as Mike Cosper reported in 2014, Addressing the Mars Hill issue, the elders of Mars Hill, they sought to launch an investigation in 2014. And what they found is that Driscoll's ministry over the years had been marked by bullying and what is described as patterns of persistent sinful behavior. And even though the elders sought to really address these things biblically, the way that Driscoll responded is he refused to participate. And instead, he simply resigned. 
The way this passage would describe it is that Driscoll refused to clean the inside of the cup. He disqualified himself from ministry and he tarnished the gospel legacy of, Mar of Mars Hill. And sadly, Driscoll is not a unique example. There are many other examples that we have heard over the years. Examples of pastors' infidelity, of ministries embezzling money, of children being hurt. These examples make your stomachs turn. So what do we do? But for us, this passage says, we must think, we must act differently. We must think like winning athletes. We must play by the rules. What does that mean? It means that we put God's word as our first priority in our lives publicly and especially in our lives privately. This is how Paul says it in verses 15 and 22. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And in verse 22, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Thinking like a winning athlete, competing by the rules, you might say, means submitting ourselves to the Bible in everything, in what we believe about God, in what we believe about ourselves, in what we believe about the world, and what we believe about all the cultural issues that we might face. It means submitting ourselves to the Bible in how we actually live our lives, that scripture informs and shapes our identities, that it informs and shapes our decisions. It even changes how we react to other people. Instead of being those who mess around with little sins, we are those who flee from sin precisely because in Christ we have found forgiveness and hope and we have found by the Holy Spirit the power to say no to sin and yes to righteousness, faith, love, and experience the peace that is in Christ. It is by living according to God's word that we will leave a gospel legacy. And in order to do this, Paul says, we not only need to think like a good soldier, we not only need to think like a winning athlete, but this final metaphor that he gives us is he says, we need to think like a diligent farmer. Now, I am not a farmer. I did do some yard work yesterday with some of you guys, which was great, loved it. Uh, I don't need to give you an illustration to prove to you that farming is hard work, right? We all kind of know and are somewhat thankful that we're not farmers, because that's hard work, right? Prepping the soil, planting the seed, weeding the beds, watering the crop, protecting the crop, harvesting the crop. This is backbreaking work. And so we need to ask ourselves, why? Why would anybody want to do that? Why would anybody keep their hand on the plow and their hands in the dirt over and over and over again? And I think the secret that all these farmers know is that they have found motivation in the power of the seed. Hey, think about the seed for a second. The farmer knows that the seed that he plants with the Lord's blessing is going to produce an abundance. All these little things, right? He puts in the ground, 
he cares for, he waters, he weeds, he does all this backbreaking work because he knows that that seed with God's blessing will germinate and produce a harvest. And the same thing is true of Christians. The way in which we think about the word of God. The farmer's motivated by the power of the seed. We are motivated by the power of God's word. I want you to look at what Paul says about the word of God in verses 9 through 10. Sorry, beginning in verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. And then he says, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I just absolutely love the image of Paul sitting in his prison cell, limited in every human way. He can't really do anything except wallow in his cell, or so they think. He pens this book and sends it out. He turns to fellow prisoners and preaches and proclaims Christ. And you know what happens when that seed takes root? It germinates. Paul might be arrested. Paul may be in prison. Paul may be awaiting the death sentence. But the word of God endures forever. Listen to how Isaiah 55 describes the word of God. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Thinking like a diligent farmer, it means placing our hope and our confidence, not in ourselves. We are a humble people. We are a humble church. We place our hope and our confidence in the power of God's word. And this means that we can truly trust that even when we suffer for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of God's word, we know that our labor in the Lord is never in vain. Our gospel legacy may look small, but like Jesus said, mustard seeds, they begin small too. This is why he says the saying is trustworthy in verse 11. It's a hymn, it's a song. It's something that Paul gives to his people. Scholars are kind of divided on whether or not Paul's writing this or Paul's echoing this hymn that other people have already written. But he says, get this in your bones, Timothy. Memorize this. Lay it up in your heart. Make sure everybody knows this. I wish I knew how to sing it. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. That is Christ. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This explanation of the gospel, this tiny hymn, as it were, demonstrates that if we seek to have gospel priorities in our lives, 
to think like good soldiers and focus on the mission, to prioritize our lives according to God's mission. If we seek to think like winning athletes, always competing according to the rules, submitting ourselves to God's word in everything, even if we suffer for it. And if we think like diligent farmers willing to keep our hands to the plow and just keep going with our confidence rooted in the seed that is God's word, if we are those kinds of people, we will have everything that we need. Look at verse one again, just go back to the top. You then, but you, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I think we tend, when we pray, to pray with half open hearts to God. We're scared to ask God for things, maybe for a couple of reasons. One, we don't feel worthy of those things. Or perhaps we don't want to get confused with the prosperity gospel, which in its own way is heresy. This passage is telling us if our goal is to leave a gospel legacy, if our goal is to have gospel priorities in our lives, this is a promise that God has given to us, a prayer he will answer. There is strength for you, for us, that is found in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Grace Church, this is a, a prayer that God will answer for us. So let us thank him now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we ask for your help. We confess where we have been faithless to you and we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We pray that by your spirit you would help us to have gospel priorities in our lives to think like good soldiers, to think like winning athletes and those who are diligent farmers. Help us where we are weak. Protect us when we are persecuted, that your gospel may be stewarded well by us in our generation and left for the generation after us. It's in Jesus' name that we thank you and praise you. Amen.